Hello, my name's Holly Keir and I'm part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their Early Career Member Representative. I'm a Translational Scientist and Postdoctoral Researcher based at the University of Dundee in Scotland. Today, we're excited to be recording a new ERS podcast for the recently published monograph entitled Inequalities in Respiratory Health. I'm delighted today to be joined by two of the guest editors from this latest monograph, Professor Ian Singer and Professor Jenny Quint. Ian is a consultant respiratory paediatrician at Alderhey Children's Hospital and Honorary Associate Clinical Professor at the University of Liverpool. Ian is also the clinical lead for the National Asthma and COPD Audit Programme in the UK. Jenny is a Professor of Respiratory Epidemiology at the School of Public Health and the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London, and is also an honorary consultant physician in respiratory medicine at both the Royal Brompton and the Imperial College London Foundation Trust. Ian and Jenny, welcome to the Monograph podcast and thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed reading this edition of the monograph and I found it really informative as well. And I think this actually is the first time that the monograph is focused on the topic of inequalities in respiratory health, which is such an important issue and will be relevant, I think, to the whole respiratory community. Before we dive into talking about the monograph and this issue, it'd be great if you could both please tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you became involved in this area. Thanks, Holly. Um, So I'm a professor of respiratory epidemiology based at Imperial College in London. I'm a clinician by background and I still do uh, a little bit of of clinical work. I do a clinic a week and most of my time is spent doing research uh, using routinely collected electronic healthcare records to study various aspects of respiratory disease. So I guess my interest in this area is twofold, really. So one is the patients that I see in in clinic and an increased realisation that actually there are definitely factors which are beyond people's individual control that are potentially playing a role in their respiratory health. And also from a research standpoint, thinking about the quality and what's recorded within the data, as well as how we use that data to better understand patterns around health inequalities and respiratory disease. And hi, my name's Ian Sinner. I'm a respiratory paediatrician in Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool. And my main clinical interests are asthma and neonatal lung disease. Uh, And these are two areas where for many years it's been clear to me that a lot of what we're seeing in the clinic and a lot of what we're seeing in the wards and in intensive care is simply just the manifestations of poverty or things that have gone wrong because people haven't had and children haven't had Uh, access to to things that they require. Great. So to kick us off, Jenny, I thought maybe you could answer our first question. Why do you feel this edition of the monograph is so important? To me, that's quite a straightforward question, actually. I think if we don't think about things and we don't alert people to things, then we can't be measuring it and doing something about it in the future. So I think from an awareness standpoint, this edition of the monograph is absolutely key for clinicians and researchers to start to think about the various different ways in which health inequalities fall across respiratory disease and then potentially going forward what we can do about that. And I think that's probably true as well from a paediatric perspective. Would you agree, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. I think things seem to be coming to a bit of a fore at the moment. And and it's important that we grab that momentum, which we've been pushing for for a long time. And there's probably been some inertia about trying to address this, but there's definitely momentum now. Inequalities is the word on everyone's lips. and, And the idea behind this monograph really is to give people a resource that can help them make the changes that they feel should happen. No, I think that's such an important point. And I 
certainly personally found when I was reading this edition of the monograph, it covered a really interesting range of topics and made me think about areas of inequality that I possibly hadn't considered before as well. That really leads us into our next question of who do you believe would benefit from reading this edition and why? I mean, I really hope that lots of people find it useful. It's been a real privilege being able to guest edit this, and I I thoroughly enjoyed reading it from cover to cover. These are world-leading experts in their fields writing these chapters, and I I think the monograph is written in a way that it makes sense to even non-experts. So there are chapters in here that are way outside what I see in my clinical practice. And I I was really engrossed in in reading them. So I hope that the book will be relevant and useful for healthcare professionals, but also for people who aren't necessarily healthcare professionals who are trying to understand the problems. I mean, one example would be as a respiratory pediatrician, I don't think we ever really think about occupational asthma. But having read the chapter on, you know, inequalities in occupational asthma here, I suddenly started thinking to myself, well, you know, our goal in life is to help children live their best life, you know, the life that they deserve to live. And yet we don't really think about their jobs and the future and and what this means for them. And I had not understood the global impact of poor working conditions on the lungs of people and the impact it has on their mortality. It was also useful for me to think about that because the arguments that people arguing for better workers' rights around the world on the basis of their lung health are not a million miles away from us arguing for better workers' rights for mothers so that they have enough money to bring up their children in in, in the healthy way that they would like. So it was really interesting reading this book because it ties together a lot of concepts. There are a lot of really key themes running through, and I hope people find that useful and enjoyable. I also think it's a really up-to-date, comprehensive resource for people having data from the most recent literature. And that becomes important because one has a tendency to think about health inequalities to take a moral argument here. And that doesn't wash. The moral argument for health inequalities doesn't come well from healthcare professionals. It comes well from other people. Our role in this story is going to be to tie together what we know about health and what we know about the drivers of health and putting them together in a coherent story so that we can make change. And I hope people use the monograph as as something to help convince their policymakers, their commissioners, their local politicians, their colleagues, their patients, to to convince people that change needs to happen and, and to give an idea of what can happen. Brilliant. No, I I found that, I mean, I'm a researcher, I'm not clinical, but I certainly found it a really interesting read, not only from a research point, but also the clinical aspects of it. And the fact, as you said, Ian, this isn't just a book to guide people on their day-to-day practice, but also looking at that global overview and what needs to change and how that can be applied to many different areas, I think is just so important. And as we're discussing, this edition of the monograph highlights that inequalities in respiratory health need to be tackled as part of both a wider public health approach, but also at that clinical level. For clinicians listening, how would you recommend addressing health inequality in their day-to-day clinical practice? The simple answer to that is if you don't think about it, then you don't see it. So I think for clinicians, one of the key things is just the awareness 
So, so thinking about things or asking questions that you wouldn't normally or have asked in the past around various health inequalities related to specific respiratory diseases. And although the monograph has been edited and written in a way that there are certain chapters associated with specific diseases, a lot of the principles actually you could you could almost apply a, a, across the board. So I think it's that that awareness that's most important. And then I think beyond that, it's about asking the right questions. It's about thinking about things that we can modify and things that we're not able to modify. And for the things that potentially we're not able to modify within clinical practice as that relationship between a, a doctor and a, and a patient, well, what other motivational tools do we have to be able to use beyond that that we might be able to, to influence? So maybe that's tackling local government and talking about air pollution, for example, or maybe it's thinking about social housing and, and um, certain environments that, that go beyond that, just that, that clinic room. So I, I think it's about thinking about it both in a narrow focus, but also more broadly to build improvements. The middle section of the monograph is dedicated to inequalities in healthcare across a range of respiratory diseases, including cystic fibrosis, asthma, COPD and lung cancer. What are the key messages for clinicians who care for patients with these diseases and are potentially also looking at patients with multiple respiratory issues? Yeah, these are really important and, and interesting chapters to read. I think the key things that come through are, as Jenny has said, if you don't think about this, you know, if you don't think that there are wider drivers of, of people's health, that, that, that you'll miss it. Earlier in the monograph, there's a chapter talking about poverty and respiratory disease. And we highlight that compared to practically any other form of chronic and acute illness, respiratory disease is inextricably linked to poverty, more so than anything else. And it's really important that we start to disentangle some of those drivers. And I think those drivers come across quite clearly in the chapters on asthma, COPD, cystic fibrosis and lung cancer, for example. I think one of the things that I would take away from all those chapters, are, oh, you, you know, these were different groups of people writing all these chapters, one of the things that comes across in their approach is that there is a biological aspect to this, that people who are living in poverty, for example, might have different issues. People who are black might have different issues. People who are women might have different issues. That you, you know, And so there is a biological driver to some of this, but there's also a socioeconomic driver to some of this. There's a race and gender driver to some of this. So what comes through in a lot of the chapters is that intersectionality of all these problems and how it is so complex and the way that you have to start to address it is at a bigger level, but also thinking about how these might impact on individuals in the clinic. I think one of the other things that comes through for me is you get stuck in your bubble, don't you? You, you sometimes don't necessarily reflect on everything which is happening around the world. And, and I was really pleased that this monograph took quite a global view on things. And so one of the things that I took from this is that what happens in Liverpool might be quite different to what's needed in Lagos. And, you know, thinking through the global health elements of this, particularly with regards to the COPD chapter, I, I think was, was really useful. And the third thing which I think comes across throughout all of these is that the best way to stop people dying from lung cancer is to stop them having lung cancer in the first place. And so the preventative measures are important. But as we see throughout the monograph, you get your biggest bang for your buck by investing in you know, pregnancy and early years of life. That's where a lot of these problems begin and start. And I think that comes through clearly in the monograph. No, I completely agree with that. I think it's a very clear and strong message. 
I'm not sure that's what you asked me. <laughs> no, you're completely fine. It was really interesting. You talked a little bit there about, you know, data collection, The sometimes the difficulties of the fact that though quite a lot of this monograph is focused on the UK because there's a lot of data from the UK, this can be applicable in other areas. But, you know, the first chapter, they looked at the importance of robust data collection for this area. And this is highlighted throughout the monograph, really. What advice would you have for researchers collecting health data? And are there potential pitfalls that should be avoided when we're looking at inequalities in respiratory health? So I'm a lover of data, as Ian well knows. And I don't think we use routinely collected data as well as we potentially can to be able to look at all sorts of factors across respiratory disease, but particularly health inequalities. And part of the problem with that is that if things aren't coded or recorded, then we simply don't know. So if you take ethnicity as an example, if you look at the proportion of missingness in terms of recording ethnicity data, you're more likely to have your ethnicity missing if you're a non-white background. So it's thinking about recording, how we record to, in order to be able to use these data going forward. Because the only way we're really going to make change is if we have robust ways in which to measure where we are at the moment, and then to be able to look at how we can improve that going forward. So my plea to everyone would be think about it, ask the questions and then make sure that it's recorded so that we can understand those those metrics better going forward. And on a kind of similar topic, you know, often when we collect data such as ethnicity, you give patients questionnaires that maybe have a text box system and some people feel like they don't always fall into those categories. And, you know, as two researchers who've worked a lot in this field, collect this kind of data, analyze it. Do you think there are benefits to allowing patients to describe themselves, how they see themselves, how they view themselves? Or do you think that tick boxes are potentially still more helpful overall for analyzing the data? I think a tick box is better than nothing. But the ideal is that the patient is able to assign their own ethnicity. One of the things that we know happens with the data that are captured as part of hospital episode statistics, for example, in the UK, is that it doesn't tend to be the patients who will enter their ethnicity into the data. It'll be the receptionist who's sat there as they're booking them into the outpatient clinic, who's then ticking a box according to what they think that individual's ethnicity is. So that adds a whole nother level of inaccuracy around those data. So the ideal that you would want would be to be able to have the most accurate data possible, which would come from the individual. But at this point, anything is pretty much better than nothing. Data is always better than no data, certainly. <laughs> One of the hot topics discussed in the small graph was the role of air quality and pollution and the relationship with health inequalities. How do you see these issues affecting respiratory health in the future? Yeah, I mean, air, air pollution has come to the fore, really, and environmental issues have come to the fore over the last 15, 20 years. I don't know why it takes so long for people to come round to quite obvious ideas, but I remember being in primary school in the mid 80s, learning about air pollution and then my kids learning the same thing sort of 35 years later. And part of the thing is that I think we need to be better at kind of linking environmental health with human health. And I think this comes through in the antimicrobial resistance chapter as well. And, and the idea that thinking about health in a silo is not the right way to do it. And the reason I say that as my answer to your question is that I think the only way that things will get better with regards to air pollution is that if there is massive change, like we can't tinker around the edges and expect things to get better you, you know that there really needs to be change with regards how air pollution impacts health one of the key themes i think in the book is that not everybody gets hit by adverse exposures in the same way 
and certain groups are at particular risk of air pollution. Certain groups are at particular risk of, of climate change. And when we look at what that means for health, respiratory health or, or other health issues, I think what we need to really focus on is, is not downstream changes that make air quality better for people with advanced stage COPD, but very upstream changes that just make air quality better to stop people getting COPD in the first place. A good example here is in India, when we think about air pollution, you know, the guys who ride those rickshaws down those diesel-laden roads are in prime position to just die decades earlier than they should. So the change that I want to see is that there is an urgent acceptance and acknowledgement that industrial and traffic related air pollution kills people. And I think that message is not quite out there yet, but is is out there. I think it's out there, but not everybody's bought into it. And I think that's one thing that needs to change. And I think also when we think about downstream problems, we need to stop thinking about respiratory complications of air pollution and just start thinking about complications of air pollution because there's also very clear evidence that this will affect cardiovascular health, mental health, neurological health, reproductive health, cancer, you know, all of these types of things are linked. And just because we breathe air pollution through our lungs, it doesn't mean that it's only the respiratory system that's affected. I think that's such an important point. And what I was going to say to you there was, of course, this does extend beyond respiratory health. It's going to affect so many different things. And yes, it's it's more than just trying to help people who've already been affected by pollution. You're completely right in saying, actually, if we can improve air pollution levels, that is going to stop many different health issues arising in the future, not just in the UK, but across the world, certainly. So what would you say are the key take-home messages from this monograph and why? The overarching message, I think, for me is that health inequalities and respiratory disease are complicated. And there is certainly not one size fits all with respect to thinking about the way various different aspects interplay with specific individuals and specific diseases, as well as how we might mitigate and change things going forward. So this you know, as Ian alluded to earlier, things take time. This is this is going to take time, unfortunately, to, to solve all of the, the issues that have been, been raised throughout this monograph. I think the important thing, though, is that people start to think about it. And I think that's where this is so fantastic, is it really is helping people to hone in and think, what should I be asking and, and what can I be doing? And from a practical standpoint, I always like to think about that in terms of what can I modify and do in the short term? What can I do as an individual in an interaction with a patient? And what's more for the longer term? Where are the research gaps? What more information do we need? And who else do we need to be lobbying and thinking about rather than just the individual patient? So going back to, to policymakers and, and governments and, and thinking about how things can potentially be modified going forward. So I think there's I think there's quite a few messages that that people can can take home. But the overarching one being this this really is important and something that we need to be thinking about. I think you're completely right. And again, we've talked about it a lot already in the podcast, but the fact that this monograph is not just for clinicians, it really is for everyone in the respiratory community and also probably in government and policy as well, because that those are the things that are going to make changes to inequalities in health. So my final question, and it's one for you both, is looking towards the future. What do you believe are going to be the key challenges for health inequality in the future? And in your opinion, how do you think these should be addressed? Changing hearts and minds is, is, is one of those things, you know, making sure that everybody knows that this is an issue. 
And the second thing that goes with that is we kind of need to move away from being just shouting into the ether and tweeting each other about how morally sad we are about various things. We actually do need to use it to drive some kind of tangible change. And I think we need to convince people that change can happen. And it can be changes that we make in our practice, changes that we get our direct bosses to make, and changes that we get prime ministers and presidents and sort of international groups to, to, to make. So change can happen, and that change needs to happen. I think a lot of the problem lies with the fact that people who hold the money and make the policies are a billion miles away from the actual problems. And so the uh, initiatives, the sort of changes, the interventions that we might make are going to miss the mark completely unless we co-produce them with families and communities. So my kind of vision, certainly for our research group, is in, in Liverpool is where do we go with place-based approaches? How do you take a national directive to improve something by 50% and actually turn it into something which matters at a council ward level with potentially high levels of vulnerable people for different reasons? You know, How do you take that and make it happen? And I think the place-based approach is going to be really key. I think in this story, there will be people like me who are clinicians and there'll be people like you and Jenny who are researchers and experts in data. And I think the first step we need to do is tie our voices together, okay? because we will start to tell a stronger story if we tell it together. But alongside that, the real changes that happen in the world happen with cultural change, with filmmakers, with poets, with street artists. And alongside all the beauty that those things bring, they bring a grit and a steel that changes people's opinions over the course of an hour in a way that I'll never be able to do over the course of my entire career. So tying clinicians, researchers, communities, and cultural and, and societal approaches to this is where it's at. These are going to be the bigger challenges, and these are things that doctors aren't necessarily well trained for. You know, it's disingenuous to do a talk about newborn lung disease in various parts of the world and not mention the fact that the biggest driver for newborn lung disease is the lack of women's rights in those places. But how do you take an epidemiologist from Imperial, a paediatrician from Liverpool, a health visitor from a particular part of the country somewhere else in the world, and formulate the story that makes sense? That's, the, that, that's going to be the challenge. How do we tie together all these threads? I completely agree with everything that you said, Ian, and I believe that the biggest challenge is really trying to persuade people to not think that this is too difficult to tackle. So I feel like there's an underlying inertia. There'll always be a certain degree of inequity and inequality, but it's how do you stop people from using that as an excuse that there's no point in trying because it's it's all too, too difficult. So for me, I think the solution to that is thinking about small steps mm -hmm. so so modifying the little things the the local things the things that you can change and then as you start to see those solutions work building on that and and starting to to take things even further because i would hate nothing more much as i love working with you to be sat here in another 10 years time having this conversation and actually nothing nothing has changed i would hope that that things really can change and 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 people can make a difference i I love the fact that you talked about that inertia because it's really important. And I think one of the things that, again, I hope comes through in the monograph that, that people will read is that we are very good in healthcare at suddenly pointing the finger at patients and, and families and saying, why did you not do this? 
And actually, when we look at it, stigma is the biggest driver. Stigma is the machinery of inequality and how we start to overcome that inertia and how we overcome our thoughts on what poverty is and what you know, sort of structural racism is and what gender-based differences are. You know, how we start to overcome that will we'll rely on how well we actually understand the world in which we live. And yeah, you're right. I feel bad now because you said something really tangible and pragmatic, which is that everybody can make small changes. And I said, we need to tackle women's rights in various parts of the world. And I think that... And I think you're exactly right. And, and people like me that jump straight to, well, this can't get better until, you know, women have education rights and things. We're part of the problem because we're right. We're right to say those things, but we can't just leapfrog things that are happening on our doorstep in order to achieve that. We have to do all these things in parallel. And the better we are at doing them, the more quickly they'll happen in parallel because these two systems will learn from each other. But I think that's absolutely key. It, it's about thinking about things from different angles. And that's that's what makes things move forward. So it's not that, you know, your approach or my approach is right or wrong. It's just about thinking about things from different angles. That That's what makes things change. I think you're both completely correct in that we all have a, a responsibility on an individual level to try and make the changes that we can day to day. But of course, there's only so much we can do as individuals. And some of this does need to be large movements and policy changes, public health changes, and changes to our attitudes in general of how we approach these topics. So I always joke with people that, you know, I do a fair bit of work with NHS England, for example, and they're not interested in evidence-based policy. They're interested in policy-based evidence. So, you know, they have an agenda and then and then they want to know what, what's going to, to underpin their agenda. So I just think fundamentally we think very differently. It's not a comfortable position to be in, to be challenging policymakers, and that's why we really wanted this monograph to pull together the stories and the arguments that we use when we when we threaten to take councils to the high court, when we threaten to take landlords to the high court, when we threaten to take uh, the government to the high court. The, the key thing is shifting it from being we are morally outraged doctors to the evidence says that this kills children. And once you do that, it's difficult for people to stand in your way. It's all about evidence, all about... I love what Jenny just said about you know, not evidence-based policy, but policy-based evidence. And how do you shift that focus? I'm going to nick that one, Jenny. Oh, yeah, no, please do. It's a, it's a favourite quote of mine. Thank you both so much for joining me on the monograph today and for such a brilliant discussion. I think this must have felt like quite an ambitious monograph to take on. It's a very wide ranging topic, but this edition really covers those areas brilliantly, not just in terms of disease, but also how to collect health data, how to look at that data and things that researchers, clinicians and larger bodies need to look for when they're researching inequalities and trying to tackle inequalities in public health. Yeah, I think it's it's a really good product. And I learned so much from the chapters I wouldn't ordinarily read. The gender and race chapters is lovely. I think the occupational health chapter I really enjoyed. That was really interesting, that chapter, actually. Yeah. I was just really impressed at how much you really got into the detail of, no, these really are the issues and this is how you should deal with it. And I thought some of the chapters were really quite powerful to read. I think people will use it to, to drive change. I'm really proud of it, actually. It was one of the things that I showed my mum. <laughs> thank you, Jenny and Ian, for joining us on the Monograph podcast today. And thank you to the whole of the ERS Monograph publications team for producing this excellent issue.